Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Today I'm going to be uh, carrying on in the series I began a few weeks ago called Jesus Rocks. And if I was to ask this question in our culture today, if I was to ask the typical person, who is the rock, what would the answer be? Yeah, yeah, Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and there's no doubt he's a, a, an impressive specimen of a human being, and that's nice that he's wearing a cross in this picture, but he's not the Rock. Now, I understand it. Like, if my name was Dwayne, I would change it to the Rock. <laughs> that's a little dig on our Pastor Dwayne out at Nevervale, just for him. Uh, but anyway, here's what Jesus tells us. We know that he's the Rock. The scripture says he is the Rock, he is the fortress, there is, is no other. And Jesus takes it a little step further, and he tells us that our duty and responsibility is to build our house or build our life upon the rock. And so we've been looking at that in this series, and I've been taking the R-O-C-K, using it as an acrostic, and trying to demonstrate how do we build our life upon the rock. So the R stands for Jesus restores our relationships. The O stood for Jesus helps us to overcome every opposition. The C that we're going to talk about today talks about he creates in us character and the K for next week talks about keeps us kingdom minded. So today we're going to be drilling down on this thing about what Jesus does in us is he creates character in us. And I remember 40 years ago when I was in Bible school, we had this, so I'm three at the time, if you're doing the math here, if you're trying to figure it out. And so we had this elderly gentleman come and teach as a guest lecturer in the Bible school, and I'll never forget what he said. He said this, that whatever you build with your gifting, you can destroy with your character. And this is an important principle for anybody in life, but it's particularly important for people in ministry. And over the last four decades, I have seen men and women build incredible ministries with their giftings only to destroy them ultimately with their character. And you've all seen it. We've seen all kinds of people fall morally, and I've seen it because I'm even closer to it, and I've seen it happen yearly, sometimes monthly. It's so distressing. Just recently, the pastor of one of the very biggest churches in Canada was arrested for sexual abuse. The police came to his door and arrested him. I think there's something really wrong with this. And I was frightened when I heard that 40 years ago. And even today, I think about it because it's such an important principle. And somehow or another, the church has missed this critical imperative of Jesus that character trumps everything else. So I want to remind you of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the important, most important discourse that Jesus gave was the Sermon on the Mount. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's about behavior, it's about conduct. And there's no question he wants good behavior from us. And he tells us these ridiculously hard things to do. To love your neighbor, to, good, to do good to people who, who are, are evil to you. And he tells us to forgive everybody all the time. And he tells us to be generous to everybody. And he tells us to be kind. They're incredibly hard things to do. But he doesn't start with that. He actually starts with the preamble of the Sermon on the Mount, which we all know as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are even more ridiculous because what they do is they tell us that the people who are the happiest in life, blessed be, meaning happy, are the poor, the meek, 
the mournful, the persecuted, that these people will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives no explanation for this. It's just the preamble of the Sermon on the Mount. He just starts right off with it and said, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are hungry. Makes no sense at all. Doesn't give any context, doesn't give any explanation, just throws it out there. And let me tell you what, what he's doing. This is important, so don't miss this. He is putting character before conduct. See, the Sermon on the Mount is all about conduct. It's about how we are to live. But here's the key in this. There's no way on God's green earth you're ever going to live out the Sermon on the Mount if you don't possess the character of the Beatitudes. So he starts with this thing that is called character. And when we look at our own lives... Here's what you can do. You can fake your character for, or sorry, your conduct for a period of time. You can act however you want. You can will yourself through your own volition. You can act a certain way for a short period of time for a temporary season. You can act however you want. But ultimately, your true character will leak out, will it not? So like, like this, this man, he's new in town, in this small town, and he sees the mayor one day on the street, and he runs up to him, he's de- desperate, and he says, Mr. Mayor, uh, is there a criminal attorney in town? To which the mayor says, I think so, we just haven't been able to prove it yet, <laughs> right? So here's what we're going to do, we're going to jump into the text today, which incidentally is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and if you catch the drift of this, I'm telling you, you're going to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what he says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. He says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I want to explain what Jesus is saying here. It's not very complicated. He's saying, don't try to change the fruit. Fruit's important. He says, don't try to change the fruit. Become a better tree. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, become a better tree. If you were a better tree, if you were a good tree, you're going to have good fruit. You're going to have good conduct. And you see, here's what character is. Character is who you are. Conduct is what you do. It's what you do. And so he says, really, what you do is an outcome. It's a byproduct of who you are. And if you actually can become a better tree, a better person in your core, guess what? You don't even have to worry about the conduct. And here's where the big mistake we've made as the church is we have been preoccupied with behavior, with conduct. We've done a lot of sermons and a lot of preaching on that. And instead of drilling down under this thing called character. So I want to tell you this really extraordinary story about a man you all know historically. And his name was Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin, what was unique about him is that history refers to him as a polymath. And if you're not sure what that is, I'll explain it. There's a difference between that and a genius. Now, a genius is someone with an extraordinary high IQ, but typically they are very smart and very strong in one particular area, like Stephen Hawking or or Albert Einstein. And they could be bumbling and muddling along in the rest of life. A polymath, on the other hand, is someone who is exceptional at everything they set their hand to. They're one of these people with competencies in a whole bunch of different avenues and things in in their life. And this is what we find Benjamin Franklin was like. And so his, his accomplishments, if I was to go through them, would take the whole sermon. But it's amazing what he did. He obviously invented the Franklin stove. But he also invented the lightning rod. He also invented the odometer. He also invented the bifocal glasses. 
And this famous picture that we see of Benjamin Franklin, you can't tell, but he's wearing bifocals. He was his first subject to wear the bifocal. He invented them and wore them himself. I understand he also invented the aviator sunglasses. <laughs> no, I, I, I may or may not be making that up, not sure. So he goes on to do just a plethora of other things. He was the governor of, of Pennsylvania, for example. He established the first fire department, the first loaning library. He was the first uh, postmaster general of the post service in the US. And then he went on to pen, or at least co-write, the Constitution of the United States. He was actually one of the very early abolitionists. He released his own personal slaves long before anybody else was talking about it and talked about the freedom and liberty of all people. So he was an exceptional human being on a whole bunch of levels. But here's a story most people don't know that actually explains a lot about who he was. When he was 20 years old, the year is 1726, he had actually been over in, in London, over in England, and he was on a ship journey across the Atlantic Ocean, which took 80 days, an 80-day journey to get back to his home of Philadelphia. So he's on his way, and on his journey, he has lots of time to think, lots of time to read. He's 20 years old, and he's deciding what he's going to do with his life, but more importantly, what kind of person he was going to be. And during this 80-day journey, he read this passage I quoted to you last week. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. When I was telling you, you can change the way you think. Remember that? And he read this from Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. And when he read that, he had an epiphany, and he decided that he wasn't going to change what he did in life. He was going to change who he was. And he came up with what is known today as the 13, 13 virtues, 13 virtues of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Now, virtues, just so you know, virtues and character, they're the same thing. They're the inner qualities of a human being. And he came up with these 13 virtues. Uh, at the time, it was only 12. I'll explain how the 13th came to be. But here they are. I'm not going to go through them all, but they're temperance, silence, order, resolution. He gave an explanation for each one of these things, a short explanation. And he started to develop that as his personal character. And he was so obsessed with it that what he did was he produced a scorecard that he kept every day. This is what the scorecard looked like. It had Sunday through Saturday and every day. And if he felt like he had demonstrated one of his virtues, one of his 12 virtues, he would mark a little mark or asterisk or check mark in that, and he kept, literally kept a report card of his character, of his virtues. And a friend of his came up to him and said, you know this preoccupation you have with your virtues makes you seem proud. To which he said, you're right, I'm going to add another one, humility, as the 13th. So this is how this came to be. And now he was not a perfect man, but he was an exceptional human being because he tried to live by character, he tried to live by virtues. Now, I'm not going to go through the 13 virtues of Benjamin Franklin. We'll be here all day, maybe all week. I actually took the staff through it a few years ago. We went through all 13. We spent 13 weeks. We spent three months going through this, one by one by one by one. Uh, just so you know, it didn't make any difference. didn't help. Uh, but, but we gave it our best shot. And so what I want to do is I want to boil down character. And, and I know I'm oversimplifying it, but I only have so much time. And today what I want to do is I want to give you three virtues or three characteristics that I think if we could embody these, I think it would change your life and change everybody's life around you. And here's what they are. They're honesty, honor, 
and humility. And by some wild coincidence, they all start with H. How does that happen? I'll never know. So let's talk first about the characteristic or the virtue of honesty. Honesty is in short supply today. I don't know if you agree with that or disagree, but I look around me. I look at our political leaders. They just lie through their teeth. They just lie and they lie and they lie and they lie. And then you know what they do? We go and we reelect them. I think to myself, why are we, why are we reelecting these people that we know are uh, lying and giving us these mendacious statements? Why are we reelecting these people? I'll tell you why. We don't expect them to tell the truth. We have lowered the bar so low that we don't expect them to tell the truth. You know how you know when a politician is lying? Anybody know? Yeah, their lips are moving. A bunch of you got that, that right off the hop. And so when I look at the world, I think there's something really broken in this whole area of honesty and in truth. In 2016, some of you remember this, in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary came up with their word of the year, and the word of the year was post-truth. Now let me explain what that term means if you're not familiar with it. It meant that we were living in the post-truth era, meaning that we no longer cared about truth and we were more influenced by our emotions than what was true or false. And if that isn't an indictment of our society, I don't know what it is. And then two years later, in 2018, one of the other dictionaries came up. Their word of the year was misinformation. How many times have you heard the word misinformation in the last few years? That's been a big one. And then a year later, another dictionary came up, and their word of the year was disinformation. Has anybody seen a pattern here forming? And what we have is we have this world where people have not embraced what is honestly truth. And here's, here's what I want to talk to you about with this. Because when it comes to honesty, it is not natural. It is not something innate. It's not something we were born with. You have to develop it. I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, how old are kids when they can figure out that if they lie, they can cover, cover up some misgiving in their life? How old are they when they figure that out? <laughs> two. At one, they haven't figured it out yet because they can't talk yet. But by two, they're already lying. They're already covering up things. And they realize that it works. And if they can just tell this little lie. And so we are not born with honesty. Honesty is something that has to be trained and it has to be learned. And as parents, it's incumbent upon us to inculcate it, to drill it into our children. So I want to tell you a story about this because I, I learned to lie at a very young age and to cheat. And so here's the story. When I went into grade one, this, you'll just be so impressed with me on this. Uh, for the first month of grade one, I was the second smartest person in the class. Second smartest for a whole month. Do you know why I was the second smartest? Because I sat right behind Lori Vogt, who was the smartest person in the class. And I figured out real quick, I was as dumb as a post, I really was, and I figured out real quick that she was getting all the high marks in class, and all I had to do was cheat off of her. And every time we had an assignment, every time we had a test, I just looked over and I got really good at it. I was really sly. I waited until the teacher wasn't looking. I had a glance and I, I just, I didn't even know what she was writing down. I just repeated exactly what she did. So for the first month, I was rocking it. I was a genius. I was the second smartest guy in the class. And then I made the classical blunder that most criminals make. They always make a mistake. You know what I did? There was one blank spot on the page that I put in the wrong answer. It said name. <laughs> this is the honest to God truth. And I wrote Lori Vote in my handwriting. <laughs> so, I, so, so I got busted. 
and she put me at the back of the room right behind David Watson. David Watson was the dumbest guy in the class. So do the math on this. I went from the second smartest in the class to the second dumbest in one day. And I cheated off David, the dumbest guy in the class. I Obviously, I was dumber because I was cheating off him. And this, is, this again, is the honest-to-God truth. At the end of the year, uh, they failed David. And they were going to fail me, too. But they thought, we've got to separate these two morons. We can't send them both into grade two. And they had to make a choice. And they said, David's the dumbest. Mark's the second dumbest. We'll move him on. We'll put him on trial in grade two. So at least we can separate these two guys. And here, here's what I'm here to tell you. Is that honesty is not something that is innate. And if we don't teach our kids, if we don't train our kids in, about truth and about honesty, they will not adhere to this virtue or to this characteristic. And here's what we know about God. See, God is truth. Isn't he? Isn't he truth? It says the entirety of his word is truth. And we look into scripture and we see again and again, what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, I am the life, I am the, what? The truth. And then he said he was going to send his Holy Spirit. And he says, and I will send you the spirit of truth. And what happens is we live in this world that doesn't even know what truth is. And probably my least favorite thing, my least favorite expression, and you've all heard it, is this. Well, I just want to speak my truth. How many hear that one? How many like that one? Nobody likes that one. Just because you think something doesn't make it truth. Just because you believe it doesn't make it truth. You might think the world is flat. That doesn't make it truth. That's not your truth. And if you're really going to be accurate about this, you say, I just want to speak my fantasy. Because that's what people are doing today. There is an objective truth. And if you speak what you think is a subjective truth, it doesn't make it true. You're following this, aren't aren't you? I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, no matter how stupid it is. But don't call it truth, for goodness sakes. It is not truth. And so when we look at at what truth is, we're, we're struggling with this, figuring out what is true and what is not. I know it's a challenge for us. And some people think truth is saying what is, you know, hurting people because they are going to be uh, honest to a fault. Have you heard that expression? And, and you ask, why do, why do you say things like that? Well, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just telling it like it is. And if it hurts people, I can't help that. I'm just telling it like it is. You know what? That is not really what honesty is. Man, I'm going to talk to you for a moment. If your wife asks you this question and says, honey, does this dress make me look fat? You think very hard before you answer that question. The right answer is no worse than normal. That's not the right answer. And there's only one right answer, and it's not the absolute truth. The, the, The right answer for that is, honey, you look beautiful in everything, which is really is true honesty. Because here's the definition of honesty. I know, I know I'm in trouble here on this one already. Fault, track with me. Track with me, people. Here, here's what honesty is. Honesty is doing the right thing and saying the right thing no matter how much it hurts you. Not about hurting other people. If you are saying things and doing things that hurt other people, that's not honesty. That's not truth. Honesty is when we can do things and say things that maybe in the end actually hurt us. So let me tell you this story. Uh, some years ago, in the years 1987, there's a coach of a high school basketball team in a little town called Coiners, uh, Georgia. And this man's name is Cleveland Strode. And uh, he's a lovely man, great man. He takes this, this team and he takes them right through the ranks. They end up, for the first time in the history and the only time ever, they end up winning the state championships 
They beat all of these high schools from the city of Atlanta. They ended up winning. And he was, everybody was celebrating and they were so excited. And so the trophy got brought back to the high school and they set the trophy up in the case. And the, the, the school could not have been prouder. Three days later, Coach Cleveland gets a memo from the school board saying that one of the students on his team was scholastically ineligible to play basketball. He had only played 45 seconds. He actually had not determined the outcome of the game one way or another. And what Coach Cleveland did was he sent the trophy back. And he said, we did not legitimately keep the rules, so I'm sending the trophy back. Everybody was mad at him. The team was mad at him. The parents were really mad at him. You know what parents, sports parents are like? Don't ever be a parent. They're the worst. And, uh, and so, so anyway, they're all, they're all mad at him. So he gather, gathers them together. And they, they said, all you had to do is keep your mouth shut. Nobody knew except for you. All you had to do is keep your mouth shut. And you gave up the trophy. And this is what he said to them. He said, nobody remembers the score of a game, but they will always remember what you were made of. And he says, if all I do as a coach is help kids win games, then I'm a failure because my job as a coach is to make them and help them become better people and people of character. Isn't that a great story, an amazing story? And, and then there's more to the story because what happened was the International Olympic Committee recognized that and sent him an award for uh, uh, the incredible, outstanding sportsmanship. And newspapers picked it up and Sports Illustrated picked it up. And the story took on a life of its own. And the town and the high school became famous not for winning, but for giving it up in the essence of truth and honesty. And uh, the city loved him so much, they made him a city councilor. They thought, finally, an honest politician. They made him a city councilor. And here's a picture of him more recently. He's an old man now, and they've named the community center after him. And he has lived with this legacy of doing the right thing. You see, this is why honesty is so, so important and so vital. And I want to show you a little verse here that I think is really important about this. It's in Proverbs 10, verse 9. And it says, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his way will become known. Did, did you catch that? It, it said, you know, sometimes we think we can get away with things because we're dishonest and we temporarily do. But he says, he who walks in integrity... At the end of the day, that person's going to stand. At the end of the day, that person is going to walk securely. But he who perverts his way will eventually be made known. Even the scripture says, surely your sin will find you out. To which one guy said, well, that's fine. I'm, my name's not Shirley, right? <laughs> and uh, here's what happens. When you walk in integrity, God protects you and he guards you. So how many, how many of you want to hear another personal embarrassing story? Do you enjoy those? The ones that make me look bad and you look good? Okay, so, so here you go. So when I was in seminary, I was actually already pastoring, and the church had decided they were going to pay for one of my semesters uh, for the uh, seminary. So they did. They paid for it. And then what happened at the end of the year was the seminary sent me the tax receipt for it, even though I didn't pay for it. It came in my name. And uh, there was a taxable credit for it on your income tax for that. And I thought, sweet, somebody else paid for it and I get the tax credit. I thought, it doesn't get any better than this. And so I sat down and I did my income tax. I figured it all out, included that tax receipt, sealed the envelope, put it on the front hall table, went to bed that night. And in the middle of the night, I woke up. And I thought to myself, 
that wasn't honest. That wasn't integrity, what I just did. I can't, I can't do that. And I couldn't sleep. And, and so I ran downstairs, middle of the night, tore the envelope open, recalculated my income tax without that credit in it. You know how much difference it made? $30. $30 difference. And I thought to myself, isn't that something? So I sent it off, went back to bed, or sealed it up, went back to bed, slept like a baby. It's amazing how well you sleep when you're not feeling guilty. Went, went to sleep, next day I mailed it. Do you know in my entire adult life, that was the only year I ever had the CRA contact me to do an assessment on my income tax? And I wanted to see every last bill. And I thought, I can't believe it. He who walks in integrity walks securely. I almost gave up my integrity for $30. What's my integrity worth? It's got to be worth at least 100 right? Not, not, not going to do that for 30 for goodness sakes. Kathy said to me one day, she said, Mark, how come you don't go golfing with Vin anymore? I said, would you go golf with a guy who lies and cheats, who moves his ball, who cheats and lies on his score? She says, no, certainly not. I said, well, neither will Vin. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing, big thing, is is honesty. The second one is, is honor. And here's the thing about honor. When I use the word honor as a virtue as a, or as a character quality, most people in North American culture don't even know what it is. Honor is probably the preeminent virtue in Eastern and Middle Eastern cultures. It's more important than anything else. And it's imperative and incumbent upon any individual in those cultures to honor their family, to honor their name, to honor their community, to honor their culture, to honor their religion. There's nothing more important to them than this. And in North America, we don't even know what honor is. We don't even understand it. What it is, is it's a deep abiding respect for others and for oneself. And in North America, we don't even believe in honor because we have supplanted it with something else called individual rights. You know what individual rights are about? You. It's all about you and my rights and my place and I need this and I need that and I deserve this and I deserve that. And nobody cares about honor. But in Eastern cultures, they live by this. And the worst thing in an Eastern or Middle Eastern culture, the worst thing you can do is to bring shame on your family or on your community. And they will do the right thing based on this principle of honor. And when we look at the scripture... Here's what most of us are completely unaware of. The Bible was written in the context of a honor-shame culture. I mean, that's what Eastern cultures are. They honor-shame. If the opposite of honor is shame, if you don't honor something, you're shaming something or someone. And the Bible was written in that context, in in that culture. And you look at a scripture, and 132 times it mentions the word honor. You look at the book of Romans, which drills down on this one, And do you know that the word honor is in there 15 times and the word shame is in there six times? And it's it's incredibly important for us to understand what it means to honor one another and to honor God and to honor ourselves. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a a few minutes of time here and I'm going to talk about uh, three things. I'm going to talk about honor God, honor ourselves, and, sorry, honor God, honor, honor others, and honor ourselves. So it all starts with honoring God. Scripture is very clear on this. Uh, Understand, again, I'll say it again, that honor is a deep respect, a reverence, even an awe. And that's what God asks for us, to honor the Lord your God, it says. It says power and glory and honor to him. Dozens and dozens of times it tells us to honor God. And here's how important it is. If we would honor God, 
Almost everything else that I'm talking about here today as far as character and virtue will fall into place. Because when you honor God, everything else kind of makes sense and everything follows along with this. I'll tell you a fascinating story about honor from Scripture that you all know. You know who the most despicable people in the New Testament were? The most despised? Who were they? The, t- the tax collectors. There was nobody worse than them. They were worse than the Romans, worse than the Pharisees. Uh, they were worse than murderers and, and prostitutes. Everybody hated them. And I'll tell you why. It's because they did not honor their own culture and their own people. And they shamed them. And what they were doing were they were Jewish men that worked for the Roman government to extract taxes from their own people to give to the Romans so that they could oppress the Jewish people even more. When you think of it in those terms, you understand why there was so much shame on these people. And that's why the scripture, oftentimes when it refers to sinners, it actually says tax collectors instead. Because they were the worst. They were the quintessential sinner. And so we have this story of this man named Zacchaeus. How many friends did Zacchaeus have? None. And what he was doing, he was cheating. Because you were on, you were on kind of commission. And if you could embezzle more money from these people than the government required, you could keep the difference. And that's what they did. They became very wealthy. So you have this particular day. I guess this man had no shame. And there was this particular day in Jesus' town, in town, and, and Zacchaeus wants to see him. But he can't see him. Why can't he see him? He's too short. And, you know, maybe I can't stop Zacchaeus from taking my taxes, but I can stop him from seeing Jesus. And just imagine this picture. They're all blocking out Zacchaeus. They're not letting him in. So then Zacchaeus goes up the sycamore tree. We all know his story. He's sitting in the tree like this, just looking. He's minding his own business all by himself because that's where they spent most of their life. Jesus walks by, looks up at the tree, and says, Zacchaeus, come down at once, for today I must come to your house. And Jesus goes to this man's house. And let me, let me ask you a question. What did he do at Zacchaeus' house? Anybody know? He Eating. He had lunch. He just went to this man's house for lunch. Do you know what that would be in that culture? Honor. He was honoring this tax collector. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing, uh, uncommon thing. And he's honoring this man named Zacchaeus, and he's having lunch with him. And we don't have any record of Jesus berating him or criticizing him or correcting him or preaching to him. No record whatsoever. And all of a sudden, something happens. Something comes out of Zacchaeus' mouth. And he says, Lord, I'm going to give half my goods to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'm going to repay him fourfold. What happened? He had an epiphany of who Jesus was. And for the first time in his life, he honored someone other than himself. And he honored Jesus because he was being honored in return, and it changed him from the inside out. And and that's the encounter that people need to have with Jesus. If they could have that encounter where they go, oh my goodness, I'm me, and that's God, and they would honor God and deeply respect and awe and even fear him, Everything would fall into place in their life. That's the first thing. So the first thing is we honor God. The second thing is we honor others. And this is simply a matter of putting others uh, ahead of ourselves, right? And so we have this interesting story in the New Testament about shame and honor. And you all know this one too. So we have Mary. She's engaged to a guy named uh, Joseph. And it turns out she ends up pregnant out of wedlock. You remember this story. And Joseph has to decide what what he's going to do. And here's how it's worded. Listen carefully. It says, And Joseph, being an honorable man, decided to put her away quietly. He wasn't going to shame her, right? Now, put her away. Put her away doesn't mean to bump her off. Yeah, you're just going to bump her off quietly. I mean, that's that's not what's going on here. And he doesn't want to shame her, even though she's made this egregious mistake, or in his mind, 
And then he finds out from the angel that actually she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit himself. And of course, the story goes on. But you see, you see what he did? Even though somebody was broken, even though somebody in his mind had committed this terrible uh, and horrible mistake, and yet he was still willing to honor her. Now, I have yet another embarrassing personal story. Do you want to hear this one? Yeah, yeah you're going to really like this one. So here's the story. So when I was a younger man, there wasn't anything I wouldn't try. And I had a Chevy pickup truck with a 350 uh, V8 motor in it, blew the motor, and I decided I was going to rebuild it myself. How hard could it be, right? Monkey could do it. So I started tearing this thing apart, and I pull the heads off, and I pull the pan, and I get the connecting rods off and stuff, and I can't get the pistons out of the cylinders. The mechanics in the room will know what I'm talking about, because what happens is there's a ridge that forms around the piston as a result of the piston going up and down in that cylinder, and it wears it down. And I had a friend, he was a farmer, he was the best mechanic I knew, so I went over, his name was Bob. I said, Bob, I'm rebuilding this, this engine, I can't get the pistons out. He said, well, you've got a ridge around the top of that, you've got to uh, use a tool, it's called a ridge reamer, and that ridge reamer will take off that ridge and those pistons will come off. He says, I have one, I'll loan it to you, so he hands it to me. So he tells me how to use it, I go, I do all eight cylinders with this ridge reamer, it works perfectly, I get to the last one, I'm just finished, and I break the tool. There's a pin on it, and I break the tool, and I'm like, oh. And I thought to myself, I thought, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the tool repaired. I'll go to Snap-on. It was a Snap-on tool. I'll go to Snap-on. I'll repair the tool. I'll give it back to him. It's good as new. No one will be the wiser. But I forgot to do it. It was my intention. But how many of you know this expression? The road to hell is paved with what? good intentions, which I had, but I never delivered on it. And so the next time I saw that tool, I was moving. And I thought, oh, there's that tool. I never get back to Bob. Never got it fixed. So I took it with me. And in the next few, several years, we moved five or six times. And the only time I ever saw that tool was when we were moving from one house to the other. And I thought, oh, that's Bob's Ridge Dreamer. I really should give him back. And so that happened year after year, year after year after year. It was in my basement for 20 years. I never gave it back to him. So then in the meantime, I became a Christian. I became a pastor. I started preaching on television. I don't know if you know that. I'm on TV. And Bob, this old friend, whom I hadn't seen for 20 years, started watching my show. And he phones me up out of the blue, and he says, Mark, can I come see you? I have something really important I need to talk to you about. And I thought, oh, okay, come on, yeah, come on. So we made an appointment. So the night before he came, I'm lying in bed. And uh, as I'm lying in bed, I thought, what could he be coming to see me about that's so important? And all of a sudden, I thought, the Ridge Dreamer. And I went down into the basement and into my tools, and there it was, the Ridge Dreamer, still broken. And I thought, oh, no. He's been watching me on TV, talking about honesty and integrity and godliness. And now he's coming to call me out. He knows I stole his Ridge Dreamer. And so I thought, there's only one thing I can do. I can grovel and beg for mercy. So he shows up the next day. He's in my office here in the building. He shows up the next day. I've got it in a brown paper bag. And I said, Bob... I know why you're here. You've come for the Ridge Dreamer. <laughs> held up the Ridge Dreamer. And I, I said, can you ever forgive me? I held on it for 20 years. I broke it. I never got it fixed. I never gave it back. He looked at me and went, huh. I was wondering where that went. <laughs> he says, no, I don't want to talk about the Ridge Dreamer. He took it. He says, I want to talk about this Jesus you talk about. He says, there's something about this Jesus character you've been talking about. I've been watching you on television. I really need to know about it. Never even looked at the Red Dreamer. And, uh, and he starts talking to me, and I shared the gospel with him. He wasn't sure if he wanted to make that acceptance that day. But he started, went back home, and he started going to church again. 
And then, are you ready for this? Several months later, I said he was a farmer. He went into a grain bin, and he fell in with the auger running, and he got sucked into the grain, and he suffocated and died. Just a few months later, after I'd shared the gospel with him. And then his son phoned me up one day, and he said, Mark, he said, I'm wondering, I know I haven't seen you since I was a kid, and I know I haven't seen you since for 20 years, but I'm wondering if you'll come and do my dad's funeral. He had so much respect for you. Respect is honor. And I thought, I stole his Ridge Reamer. What are you talking about? He said he had so much respect for you. So I'd do that. So I showed up at his funeral. There were 600 people. The entire community showed up. It was a tragic death. And I shared the gospel with these people. I told them the story of the Ridge Reamer. I'm still trying to get that you know, guilt off of me, right? Still deal with that shame. And here's, here's the point I want to make, people. What would happen if we started going through life honoring our fellow man? What would happen? What would our world begin to look like if we started honoring everybody we encountered? And the last part of this is to we honor God, we honor others, and we honor ourselves. And why is it that people are living such self-destructive lifestyles today, young people in particular? Why do they, they drink and do drugs and have wanton sex? And I'll tell you why. Because they don't honor themselves. They have no self-respect. Nobody has taught them and brought them up in this concept of self-respect. See, the Bible says this, to love your neighbor as yourself. How are you going to love your neighbor if you loathe yourself? You can't do it. And until you start honoring yourself, you're never going to be able to honor your neighbor. And so what's really missing in this, in this whole world of ours is this simple thing that is so foreign to Western culture called honor. So it's honesty, it's honor. Last and final thing, I'll crash land this in just one moment. And it's humility. And humility is, is often considered, and we, we barely talk about it again, another one, it's often considered the highest of all virtues and the preeminent one. And if you think about this, when you look at the original sin in the garden of Adam and Eve, what was their sin? I'll tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't fruit. It wasn't eating. It wasn't gluttony. What was it? It was pride. It was pride. Satan came to them and said, uh, the Lord knows in the day that you eat this fruit, you will not die. You will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What was that? That was pride of heart. You can be just like God. You don't need God. See, the height of arrogance, even today, the height of arrogance in my mind is people who grow through life thinking that they don't need God and they don't need a Savior because they're okay. And there's nothing more arrogant and proud than that. And the Scripture says that he who uh, humbles himself, God will exalt, and he who exalts himself, God will abase. And here's what humility is. Humility, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less less often and, and so, so exclusively. That's what it is. And so I'm just going to leave it there. And we're going to look at this and say, you know what, how are we really going to change our world? Well, we're going to start by changing ourselves. And the way we do that is we start to embody the characteristics and the virtues of Christ to become Christ-like. And a very good start is these three things of honesty and honor and humility. And if we would start treating others and ourselves like that, we could honestly change the world. Let's stand together, shall we? All right, we're going to take a moment here like we always do, every head bowed and every eye closed, if you would not mind. Because I, I know in a room this size, there's always people that have never invited Christ into their life to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to give you that opportunity today. 
And uh, nobody's looking around. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Not going to call you forward. Not going to single you out. So right where you are, if you're not sure of your standing with Christ, you're not sure if you were to leave this world this week or this month or this year, like my friend Bob, if you're not sure where you are, what better time than now, Father's Day, to invite the Father of lights, the Father of heaven into your life and to accept the work of his son, Jesus. And that's the only real surety you'll ever have. And so with nobody looking around, if that's you, and I won't call you forward, I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly, so don't worry about that. But if that's you and you'd like to make that decision today, I want you to just slip up your hand. Just take a moment, slip it up. Uh, and if maybe you knew him in the past and you've fallen away, maybe you want to put up your hand. All right, thank you. Okay, super. You, you can lower your hands if you raise your hands today. We're all going to say this prayer together, though. Are you ready? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the work of the cross. And I confess I've been arrogant, thinking I could do life on my own. But I can't. So today I humble myself. And I bow at the foot of the cross. And I thank you that you died for my sin. You rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. And by doing so, you do a work in my heart. You change me from the inside out. And today, Lord, I ask for honesty, for honor, and humility. Change me, Lord, into the Christ-like person that you desire me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 